If you're looking for great Christian content, we want to encourage you to check out peachtreepress.org. Peachtree Press LLC offers digital products, journals, books, Bible study guides, sermon outlines, Christian blogs, and church notebooks for children and adults. Some products are also available as print on demand. Peachtree Press is a sponsor of this program and a partner in offering authentic Christian content. For more information, check out peachtreepress.org. Welcome back, rappers, to our fourth season of the Ray Reynolds Rap Podcast. If you haven't already done it, please hit that subscribe button or follow us for content on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube. Also, check out our website at rayreynoldsrap.com for sermons, weekly blogs, books, study guides, and lots of free stuff. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy today's program. If you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Jonah. Uh, we're going to the Old Testament prophets, so if you part your Bible in the middle, old and new, you'll just turn to the left a couple of chapters, and you'll see the book of Jonah. Uh, I love teaching through this series. I've had several people say, you've been preaching and teaching a lot on Old Testament here lately, and uh, that, that part of it is intentional in that we're trying to keep with the theme and the topics we have designed, but also because some of these stories, uh, I do believe... Uh, can really change the way we look at our walk with God because we see his consistency in both the Old and New Testament. Uh, About every few years, they will come out with a new movie, and it'll have a title, and there'll be part of the story that sounds a little bit familiar. In fact, maybe even the characters mentioned in the trailer sound a little bit familiar. And as you begin to do a little research on the movie that's coming out, you find that they released the same movie like 30 years ago. All they've done is upgrade a few special effects and changed a few of the characters around. And in fact, I, I submit to you, I'm not sure that we have a lot of creative bones in, uh, in the, that area of media and the arts. We spend a lot of time going back over the things that we used to like as kids. A lot of the new stuff is not all that new. And so what we can do is we put a little uh, different look at it, or maybe the director or the actors put a little different spin on the character of the story that maybe we missed before. And uh, we certainly want to, when we study through texts of Scripture, think about what we've heard before, we've read before, we've studied before, but also be able to approach it with a new pair of eyes. And we want to do that as we study Jonah, to see some of the things that maybe we missed at different points uh, in the past. In fact, one of the reasons why I think we're often kind of shocked about studying through these Old Testament stories is that we did these in one-shot Bible studies as children. In fact, you probably remember uh, having a class where the teacher talked about the big fish or the whale, depending on what translation you're using, Uh, this big fish. And you've probably heard the story of Jonah, but I doubt you spent an entire month or a quarter studying this story because it's just four short chapters, but there's a lot of meat there. Uh, It's one of the reasons why I use a lot of the graphics with this. I, I did these. I didn't intend for them to be for children because I like cartoons too, right? So Uh, But I use these graphics because uh, hopefully one day I'll I'll share it with some young people. But uh, Jonah is a fish story, ultimately. Now, that only took place in the last chapter. Uh, The Bible tells us in chapter 2, which we studied just a couple weeks ago, that Jonah, of course, is uh, thrown off the ship. He tells the sailors, I'm the one that's guilty. The lot has fallen on him. They know it's true. And so he says, just cast me overboard. And they eventually, after some nervousness and trepidation, they decide to go ahead and do it. And when they throw him overboard, it's almost immediately after that that the water begins to still 
and then this big fish just swallows him up. So in chapter 2, we see the prayer he offers in the belly of this great animal. He's like, oh, this is terrible, and I feel like I'm going to die, and I got seaweed wrapped around my neck. And then the last part of that chapter tells us that the Lord spoke to the fish, verse 10, and vomited Jonah out onto dry land. Uh, I, I concluded last week by mentioning that there, were, there are many stories of things like this happening in the past. It's not completely um, you know, set apart as one specific event. This has happened before where these large fish or, or whales will swallow large things, ships even, can be swallowed up. And so this story is a little different in that God is specifically taking Jonah to a place he wants him to go, but he has to do it via water and not by land. Jonah would have been much easier for him to just go ahead and go the direction God had called him to. So the three days in the fish is Jonah's fault because he was that far away from where he was supposed to be. And now as he has vomited up on the seashore, I want to go through and just kind of notice him in the middle of God's plan here. Uh, and we're going to see the prophet uh, as he responds to the call. Uh, second of all, we're going to see that the people are going to be favorable to the message. They're going to repent. And then the last section shows that God relents and does not destroy them, which we will really get into uh, next week, next Sunday night. So let's read the text here together. And I'm going to go ahead and just, just study through these verses. I'll go ahead and read them all, and then we'll come back and talk about them. It says, beginning at chapter 3 and verse 1, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach it to the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth, from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came uh, to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covering himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let Man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to the Lord. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. Now, from the previous text in chapter, uh, chapter 2, well, really the end of chapter 1, God spoke to Nineveh, or spoke to uh, Jonah to go to Nineveh. He specifically tells Jonah, this is what I want you to do. And I think it's interesting that he knows what he's supposed to do. He's prayed about it in the belly of the fish, but God gives him a nice, subtle reminder. I have reached the point in my life that I have to be reminded of some things more than once. I have to be taught or told several times because I forget 
I will go into a room to do something and immediately forget what I was there to do and see something else that needs to be done and get off track. So Jonah, God is patient with him, and he says, okay, here's what you're supposed to do. And I personally, I think if I were Jonah, I would go, yeah, God, I get it. I totally get it. I understand. You know, I know you're mad at me. But I'm, I'm ready to go. But God is showing his loving kindness by giving him another opportunity. It also allows him to hear the voice of God a second time. Now, why is that significant? Many times whenever God turned his back on his people, he ceased from giving direction. It's almost as if at some point, and this happens multiple times throughout the Old Testament, God says, do this, do this, do this, and as they continue to do sin, he withdraws. We see this through the judges, that there are seasons where they have men that lead for 20 years or 40 years, but then they fall back into sin, God stops talking to them. Then he picks a judge and sends him back. So this is really confirmation to Jonah that God is still with him. And uh, even though I would probably be shocked to hear the voice of God a second time, being Jonah, a prophet of God, he probably said, thank you, Lord, for not giving up on me. And he goes then to make this, this trip into the city. Now, I want you to notice a couple things about the city. And this is on the backdrop of his punishment, of course. He'd been unfaithful. He now is going to walk. Now, how many days does it say he has to get to the center of the city? Three, right? To get to where he's supposed to go and he's to preach. Now, how many days was he on board the ship? We don't know. How many days was he in the water inside the fish? Three days. So let's, uh, let's kind of pause for a moment and think about the, uh, the way that Jonah looks. Uh, let's be a little more specific. Let's talk about the way that Jonah smells. All right? Imagine someone who has been in the belly of a fish, who has been spit out on the ocean. So you've got fish smell, and you've got ocean smell, and you've got sand all over you. Who, on top of that, hasn't showered in at least a week. Okay? I don't think you can get any more humble than Jonah's position at this moment. I'll tell you what, let's add a little more to it. In the three days he's in the fish, and in those days he's heading into town without having probably showered or even eaten anything at that point, he also smells like vomit. So think about the smell. Don't think about it too long. I don't want anybody sick in here. Think about the smell of this man who is coming to town proclaiming to be a prophet, proclaiming to be someone who has heard a message from God and I would guarantee that if someone came into my presence like this, I probably would, you know, you, you smell terrible. I don't want to hear what you have to say. He's even being an Israelite, already an enemy, making his way to the city gates. And so there would seem to be a lot of pushback from the Ninevites when he gets there. Hunter. Yeah, he looked funny, smelled funny. We know from uh, studying things that have been inside of the stomach acid inside of a fish, it will decolor uh, or take out the pigmentation or the melanin in your skin. And so uh, he would have been bleached. So uh, 
looks like a ghost. Looks like, you know, like, wasn't it Marley that comes out? And Charles Dickens, you know, he's got the chains all on him. This, he looks, he looks, I don't see him going and finding a Hampton on the way to Nineveh. He is so upset and so frustrated. He's not getting a shower. He's not getting a nice place to sleep. And he's making his way into town. Now, as we hear, he hears the voice of God. He goes to the right city. He goes to the right place inside the city. And he goes with the right message. But we notice a couple things about his behavior. One is he very quickly sputters out a few sentences. And then he feels like he's done. We'll see in the next chapter that immediately after he finishes... Uh, talking to them, uh, he just kind of sets down and waits for God's anger to, to come upon them. Uh, we don't know if it was this time or it was later that he actually heard the proclamation. It seems to me, and again, this is by my perspective in studying the text, that he walks where he's supposed to be, he says what he's supposed to say, but he doesn't do anything more than that. You know, it's kind of like whenever you send your children to go do something, you know, say, hey, would you go clean your room? If they come in and they get Windex and Pledge, you're in shock, you know. I thought they were coming for a trash bag, but they're actually going to clean. If they get out the vacuum, you're, man, the duster, whoa. I mean, he's, it's exciting that the, the child is doing all these. Don't expect your child to do above and beyond, you know. Sometimes they just want to get done quickly. Uh, my mother hated it when she would come into my room, and i go, room's clean, room's clean, can I go ride my bike now? And she'd be like, well, what about your closet? It's clean, don't open it. Don't open that door, Mom, because she opens the door and everything falls out. That's all I would do. Or underneath the bed, you know, you kick underneath and you shove underneath, and, or you put a coat over it, like that's supposed to help. But Jonah should have known better than to just give the bare minimum. This was a nation. This was a nation of people, whether they were evil or, or wicked, that doesn't matter. God says, I want to save them. I want to save this nation, and I am giving you the command to go and to do it. A very uh, daunting task, but it would have been a wonderful thing, I would think, to see an entire nation on their knees. So Jonah responds to the message. He does what he's supposed to do, and the people then repent. They repent. Uh, in my life as a minister, I've seen some amazing things that have happened uh, during uh, worship services, during Bible camps, times of revival. Uh, I mentioned a few weeks ago when we were in, uh, I was in Mississippi doing a gospel meeting. I don't even remember, I have it wrote down somewhere how many uh, responded to the invitation, but there was like 20-something teenagers that came up together to the front pew, and boy, that moved everybody with emotion. Uh, I remember doing a, a, a service one time. I was leading singing in Springfield, Missouri for our church, and the assistant minister was preaching. Wasn't even our pulpit guy. The assistant minister was filling in, and he was teaching a lesson about how we as Christians in the world have to run our race, and we want to give up too quick, and we want to just, you know, throw in the towel and he says, you know, we've got to keep pushing on. God is using us to do great things and just gave this powerful message. And we had 32 people or 33 people that came forward and two or three were baptized that Sunday morning. And so I can imagine, I can imagine dozens of people. I've seen that. I've never seen 100 people respond 
to an invitation. I've never seen a hundred people. I've heard of churches that have done it. I've heard of Charles Coyle back in the day of doing gospel meetings. I think they have in Texas the largest number of people that have ever responded to the invitation to be baptized. And, and according to Wikipedia anyway, Charles Cole holds that record of the most people, at least documented most people. But you think about how many people it would take to, as you being the speaker or the person bringing the message, to bring joy. Most of the time we're excited if one person comes or two people come. The entire city, the entire nation of people repent. Now this is, this is the moment where we see why God sent Jonah. Because the people had it in their heart to change their ways. And notice it really starts from the bottom up. You know, it's, it seems like people are willing to repent and change, but then when the word gets to the king, he says, I'm going to make it mandatory that we all repent, put on sackcloth and ashes. Now, this is a, a phrase that's used many times in the Old Testament. Basically, was you would take the ashes or the burn pile, if you will, of the things that you had burned in your home or in the fire, the fireplace, all kinds of that. They take the ash and they would dump it on themselves. The sackcloth basically is sacks of cloth. It's the rags that were used. There's a more graphic term I won't use for you, but if you want to dig in, you can see what the Hebrew term means there. But basically just garbage, that you, you heap up garbage on yourself and you ask God to forgive you. I'm worthless, I am, I am trash, I have, I have sinned against you, God, and I want to change. And the king says, this is what must be done. And the king takes it a step further, by the way, and he says, we're not even going to let our animals eat or drink. The whole nation, anyone who can read this proclamation or hear, or hear this proclamation is going to fully repent. So put yourself in Jonah's shoes. Shouldn't you be excited? Shouldn't you, in knowing that you have spared or saved a multitude of people for their multitude of sins, that you would say, now I see why God did this. Uh, the problem is, Jonah's not going to be happy. It's the opposite is true. He's angry that God is gracious. He's frustrated that God is merciful. But the people repent. They say that they're sorry. It almost follows the same list that we find in 2 Chronicles in chapter 7, 11 through 14, in that they're turning from their wicked ways and they are responding to the message to be able to become faithful in, in whatever way they can to God. So let me pause here for just a moment and put yourself in Jonah's shoes. Why can Jonah not allow himself to enjoy the moment? Anybody got an idea why? That's right. He wanted to see the fire and brimstone. He wanted to see the justice. Where's the justice? Now, remember also, I mentioned as we started a couple weeks ago, as he made his way into the city, the walls of the outside of the city and the, uh, basically the, the walkway making your way up to the city gates is covered with bones. It's covered with skulls, not just of Ninevites who'd passed away, but of their enemies, and they would put them on display. I, I never have really understood this. I, I, don't, I don't understand why people like skulls. 
I've never, it's never attracted me to put a, a pink skull this big on the mantle in the house. I don't know. Some people do that. I don't, I don't understand that. But the skull, they do that at Halloween, you know, put the skulls out. But the skull is not just a bone. It represents an individual. And in Jonah's case, some of these were probably Israelites. These are individuals who were either favorable of Israel, they were partners against the Ninevites, or some of them could have been Israelites. And so he's, he's got to be angry as he makes his way in, but God has spared him, right? God spared him from the great fish. God has allowed him to survive to come all the way to the center of the city. Why can't he allow himself to enjoy this moment? Wants to see the punishment of these people? Why else do you think? Why can't he just enjoy the fact that he was successful? Mm -hmm. That's right. They were harsh and they were cruel. This is the worst of humanity. Probably the worst on the planet at this time. Right. 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 People wanted to see it. They wanted to see it. Hunter, can you say something? <laughs> Right. Mm hmm Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, no, he did not. He, he was racist. He was very prejudiced against these people. He would not allow himself. Uh, it doesn't say anything about staying in somebody's home or anything like that. He wants to get in, spit out a few sentences, and walk away. Uh, it may be that he feels like there are times that God has warned the Israelites, and they didn't obey, and they were punished. And he may be hoping that God is saying, go tell them if they don't obey, then I'll do everything that I said I was going to do. Um, but, but Jonah certainly uh, does the least bit that he can to get them the message. Mm -hmm. Right. 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 That's right. Yeah, Nahum has the message that Jonah really wanted. Nahum also describes a little bit of the city and the, 
the um, entertainment that they enjoyed, uh, some of the graphic things that they did. Not just here, but there are other texts that will tell that story. Jonah's telling it from a first-person perspective. Now, I want you to also notice that whenever this is said to the people, uh, I say a few sentences because I doubt this is all he said, but maybe it is. Going back, notice verse 4. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. He basically says, you got, you got a limited amount of time, and then it's over. He does not say, God would like for you to repent. He does not say, get on your knees, pray to God, humble yourselves, put on sackcloth and ashes. He says, in just a few days, you're all going to die. Goodbye. And he walks away. He drops the mic. Uh, we don't know what else was said, but this may be it. 40 days, you're all going to die, and I'm going to go put myself on that cliff over there and watch. And every day the sun comes up, and Noah sets, or Jonah sits there, watches the sun come up, and he watches the sun set, and God doesn't do a thing about it. It's sad that of the grace that is given to these people, that the one person preaching the message that should believe in the mercy and grace of God is the only one that's unhappy. The text tells us that God had already prepared their hearts. They knew they were wicked. The king knew they were wicked. It says from the greatest to the least, every person knew. They knew they were living in wickedness. They knew they were living in sin. They don't want to be overthrown. Now, the other thing is they're the largest uh, military, the greatest world power at this time. So who could overthrow them? Only someone or something spiritual, supernatural could do it. And so uh, remember they worshiped fish too. That's a big part of this story. And so no doubt uh, when he says, hey, by the way, I've been in a fish. So you smell like it, you look like it. And then he says, you're all going to die. And they believe him. Yeah. Yes, right. Correct. Right. Yeah, and, and, and as he makes his way into the city, again, he's, where's his, where's his animal? You know? Now, the veggie tail will make you think that the camel was waiting on him when he got spit out on the ground. That's not, that's probably not true. I doubt his trusty steed came running to the side of the seashore where he just happened to land. I'll guarantee you by the text that he walked the entire distance. And if you've ever had to walk and walk and walk and walk, and especially when you're asked to do something you don't want to do, uh, he's just ready to go home. He cannot allow himself to enjoy a blessing. Do you know people like that? Who cannot allow themselves to be happy for one minute. They have so much frustration and so much anger and so much bitterness that they cannot enjoy a single moment of life. They have sucked all the energy out of the room. As soon as they walk in, you can see it in their face. Uh, there are certain people that from time to time, even when I'm out in the community, I, uh, man, it's going to take me a while. We had a, a lady, uh, I hesitate to tell this story, but I will. We had a lady that was working at our pharmacy. And she was always grumpy. I mean, grumpy, 
wrinkled brow, unhappy, point here, point B. You got to do this. You got to do that. And I said, you know what I'm going to do? Every time we go, I'm just going to be as nice and happy and smiley and so good to see you. And I'm not talking about being fake either. I was seeing her as I believe Jesus would want me to see her. And ask her questions, ask her about her family, ask her about her health, constantly be positive. And I don't know if she's that way with everybody, but I'll tell you what, when she sees us coming now, she is all smiles. But sometimes there are people we encounter that no matter how hard we try, they just don't want to be happy. They would rather live in depression and anxiety and sadness and frustration. They want to be like Eeyore, you know, that's the way they live it. There are Eeyore Christians in the world. They've been raised on a pickle, and they have no idea what it's like to have any sunshine in their soul. Jonah was that person. And you could say that he's bitter because of the way these people treated him. You could say that he's upset because of the fact that some of his friends or family had died at the hands of the Ninevites. It could be he's heard all these terrible horror stories. But these are people that are no question before he makes his way up to the corner of the mountaintop to sit and watch the destruction, that these people had a heartfelt, sincere repentance. They put sackcloth and ashes on themselves and on their animals. They did not eat, and neither did their animals. They did not drink, and neither did their animals. How many days was it that they were supposed to wait? Forty days. Anytime the Bible talks about 40 days, you might want to highlight it. Something spiritual is about to happen. Something God planned is about to happen. Forty days. They fast. And they pray, and it says that God relented. We had a class one time uh, in, I think it was my undergraduate studies, and our teacher asked us to debate what it means to relent when it says relent. Because some texts say God repented. Repented means to change. We look at it in a negative light. We say repented is a bad thing. Repentance can often be seen as a good thing. But the text in the New King James uses the word relent. I prefer that because of what's happening in the text. To relent means to withdraw. It does not mean to completely change. It means to withdraw and to allow time to take place before the ultimate event. And as Billy mentioned a minute ago, Nahum is going to get that message. It's going to be several years, but Nahum's going to come and say, hey, look, you had your chance when Jonah came and preached the gospel to you, the message. You can be saved. Now you have got no other choice but to be punished. Uh, and so they had their second chance. They had their opportunity, and they have now blown it. So Nahum's going to say the punishment is coming. But God relents. God withdraws. And so one of the reasons why we'll see next time when Jonah makes his way up to kind of watch things, it, even if God's relented, how long will it be? Jonah is so happy in his unhappiness that he's willing to camp out until the end of time to watch these people die. He, he, he wants to sit down. He's there long enough for it. We'll see next week. I know we're getting into a lot of it, but we'll see next week that he's there long enough for a plant to grow up over him, okay? He's there long enough to watch through these days, and he is willing to fast himself and focus on what's going on down in the city, and he's not going to get what he wants. This message is as much about God's grace as it is Jonah's harsh, judgmental, critical spirit. The only reason that we have this probably in our Bible is to show us 
not to be like Jonah. That when God calls, we go the first time. And when God says, I want to save some people, we need to be for it. God is not willing that good people perish, right? No, it's God's not willing that any should perish. Regardless of the person we see as an enemy or someone who's evil or someone who's wicked or the terrible things that they've done, God wants them to be saved. Notice it talks about their works in verse 10. Uh, God spoke to them. God had literally through Jonah said, I'm going to give you a second chance. And he saw their works. And this is another part of the story is that they didn't just say that they wanted to be saved. Anybody can say that. Anybody can say, I want to I wanna go to heaven. That's easy. But our works that are present are what God looks at when it comes to salvation. What steps are we taking in that walk to ensure our salvation? And they did all the things necessary to show God that they were sorry. Uh, it's easy to say, I believe in God. It's easy to say I want to do different, but God saw their works. You know, Bible teaches us about having uh, worked out our own salvation, and that's what they're doing. They're proving to God we're really, really sorry for what we have done. Uh, and they know the power of God. They've seen it again with Jonah here, but they've heard the stories. These, these nations, we, we think maybe because they were so archaic that, that a lot of the stories that take place in the Bible weren't told, but they were told. Every nation who came in contact with Israel knew who their God was, and they knew the stories of what their God had done. Uh, if you don't believe that, go and notice after many years, 400 plus years, that they spent in Egypt, and then they make their way out of Egypt and through on their way to the promised land, spend 40 years in the wilderness, they're going to make their way to the gates of the city of Jericho. They're going to make acquaintances with a woman like uh, uh, Rahab, who knows the story. Everybody they encountered knew the stories. Oh, you're that's right, the Israelites. Remember that story about parting the Red Sea? Oh, you remember that story about them killing the giants, uh, Sihon and Og? Do you remember the story of... They all knew who these people were. They knew who God was. And they were fearful of God. More fearful of God than they were the children of God. And so they change their minds. And then it changes their actions. God doesn't relent just because they say they were sorry. God relents... Because they showed they were sorry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Mm-hmm. 
That's a, that's right. Right. But the true answer is none of us are. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, I also think one of the things that bothers me about Jonah, and maybe it's because I'm a preacher, but it bothers me because of it seems to be almost a spirit of arrogance that uh, it's beneath him to talk to these people. Even in his disheveled, terrible, ugly-looking shape that he's in, you know, he's, he's very much not looking the part of a preacher. Well, it depends on where he's preaching, I guess. But he's very dirty. He's, you know, he doesn't look the part of a, a prophet. He makes his way in. He preaches the message. But I see this, and, and again, this is me, the, this pride that he thinks God ought to know better. And he thinks that God is going to see these people's works and say, I don't believe it for a second. He never for any moment in the story shows, if you will, true signs of repentance. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. He will say that in the next chapter. Now, I see his sorrow in chapter 2 for not wanting to die. Uh, you can kind of relate it to this. There's a difference uh, in the compulsion we have to, to abandon sin or to change our ways, and it's very simple. Some people are sorry because they are grieved for what they've done, and some people are sorry because they got caught. And there's a big difference between really being humiliated, which Jonah was, or voluntarily taking that moment to humble yourself. Jonah had not humbled himself. He'd allowed God to humble him. And see, when, when the Word of God teaches this multiple times, go to the New Testament, James teaches this, that those who humble themselves will be exalted, but those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And that goes back to a basic teaching of Jesus to always think about the least of these, to compare ourselves with those that are less than us. And one of the dangers we have, even in Christianity today, is to assume that somehow we are worthy of blessings and grace and gifts and all kinds of wonderful things, and that other people are not worthy because they haven't put in the time. They haven't got uh, the, the, the experience that you have. They haven't gone through all of these things that you've had to deal with in your life. And sometimes people will choose, choose to become a Christian very late in life. And, and we say, well, I can't believe this. We, we talked about this some months ago when we were talking about Jeffrey Dahmer, uh, which I do not encourage you to watch that series on Netflix. But um, it, it, there is this, this aura around his story that people were angry. They're still angry about the show being put on uh, television because it shows a man who despite all the horrible terrible tragic ungodly wicked things that he did he made a choice to change his life even in those last fleeting months or years uh, really months before his before his death untimely death we don't like for whatever reason i'm using this in a general sense People do not like to see good things happen to bad people. 
It's one of the reasons why some people never become a child of God. Because they don't understand how God could allow something good to happen to somebody that's wicked. And how God could have something wicked be given to someone who is good. It doesn't make any sense. It's the reason why Job's in our Bible. How, how, could, how could God allow that to happen to Job? I mean, he's a good guy. God even says he's the best on the earth. Why would you put a man through that? It doesn't make any sense. And so we do have a tendency to want to almost rank sin. There's some people that are so far in wickedness that we don't think they're deserving of salvation. And that's where Jonah is. The danger is that a reason why we're studying this now, even though it's an Old Testament story, we're not bound or commanded to, to follow all the old law, but there's a story here that relates to us in kingdom living, that we do not ever allow ourselves to think that we are above any other. What we have by God's grace is a blessing that is afforded to us, but it's also given to those who will accept it. These people went above and beyond to be able to ensure their salvation. They would do anything to be saved. They're unlike the story, uh, remember, of Naaman in uh, 2 Kings chapter 5, who doesn't understand why he has to go dip in the river Jordan seven times. He doesn't understand why. And basically the slave girl humbles him and says, well, if he'd have been told you to do some great miracle, you would have done that. So why can't you just do it? And he humbles himself, and it's on the seventh time he's dipped in the water that his leprosy is cleansed. And it's a great story about finally giving in to God. And I'll tell you, there are times and seasons of our life that we want to run away from God. We don't want to do it his way. It's not our idea. It's not our vision. It's not our plan. And oftentimes people will make it easy on us too. We see this a lot in religion today. Religious groups are succeeding and growing because uh, they're, they're teaching something people want to hear. Well, God loves you no matter what you do, and you're going to be saved. You ain't got nothing to worry about, and uh, just, just pray and accept them into your heart, and you're good to go. Uh, and that's not the way, obviously, the New Testament teaches. But these people said, we'll do anything to be saved. We want to be saved. Yeah, Hunter. Yeah. Right. 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 Yes, it is. Any other thoughts on that? I do think it's impressive that the king writes more words than Jonah speaks. 
I don't know if that's intentional uh, as Jonah pens this book. But notice the king has a lot to say about the grace of God. He has a lot to say about repentance. He is fearful for his nation. He's fearful for himself, but he's fearful for his people. So much so that he gives a direct command to everyone to, to proclaim it, to proclaim it as a season of fasting and prayer and seeking the face of Almighty God. Just like the sailors on the ship, they immediately turn towards God in, the, in, the, in a time, a season of, of storms and trial. The people here have turned their face to God. It's an absolutely wonderful thing to see it happen. And I'll close with this, <clears throat> I'll close with this thought tonight. There's a story given in uh, the Gospels, and it's repeated several times. I guess the lengthy, most lengthy one is in uh, Mark's Gospel. But Jesus is performing miracles, and the Pharisees, the mighty, you know, righteous people, the Pharisees come out and say, well, he does this by the power of the devil. You remember that? Power of Satan. And instead, Jesus says to them, you've blasphemed against the Spirit of God. In other words, be careful that you don't call something God is doing as wicked. Or you don't say what God has done, what God has allowed to happen is a bad thing. Because if God is for it, no, nothing and no one can be against it. Uh, and to takeaways, real quick. <clears throat> one, do what God says when God says it. Isn't that easy? Just do it when he says to do it. Uh, just like your parents said to you, just do it. I told you to do it because I said so. And number two, everyone needs a second chance for grace and mercy. Everybody needs a second chance. Those are the two takeaways for tonight. Thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube. Also, visit our website at rayreynoldsrap.com. If you'd like to contribute to the show, content suggestions, uh, questions, prayer requests, or even if you just want to reach out to us, you can email us at rayreynoldsrap at gmail.com. Have a great day as you seek to maintain an authentic life in Christ Jesus. To help you in your study of the Bible, we want to send you this Bible correspondence course. This course is non-denominational. It's based on the Bible. It's conducted by mail, and it's free. To receive this course, write to Getting to Know Your Bible, P.O. Box 314, Summerdale, Alabama, 36580, or call toll-free 1-877-711-5214.